This is Faith and Letters. I'm your host, Ben Bishop. on politics, religion, and the relationship between the two appear regularly in both The Atlantic Magazine and The New York Times. He served in three Republican presidential administrations, including as an advisor to President George W. Bush. He's also the author of several books, most recently The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. Now, the subtitle of that book makes his allegiances pretty clear. I cannot think of a more consistently staunch critic of Donald Trump than Pete over these last seven years of Trump's rise, presidency, and electoral defeat. One of his main themes for over half a decade now as a columnist has been the relationship between American evangelicalism specifically and the political movement that Donald Trump has been the avatar for. And as somebody who grew up in the evangelical world, and has been quite disturbed myself by the increasingly grotesque marriage between many evangelical Christians and the caustic, self-interested brand of politics, and also just posturing oneself towards the world that Trump has famously popularized and championed, I have found a kind of sanity and encouragement in Pete's measured and unvarnished take on the situation. He does not pull many punches. Pete and I discussed, in light of that, how to write honestly about people you strongly disagree with without falling into the very hatred that you claim to be opposing in their conduct or rhetoric, as well as his experience working with other Christians in power, and the difficult question of why so many Christians just don't seem to be all that different from anyone else. Thank you so much for taking time to be with me. Of course. You worked in three different Republican presidential administrations and have also been at a think tank. Now you're at the Trinity Forum and have done, for our purposes, probably most interesting to me, both as someone who's read your work for a long time um, and just as a podcast focused on writing, you've done a lot of writing, both um, maybe most notably for folks as a a contributing editor at The Atlantic Magazine and an uh, op-ed writer for uh, a number of years now for the New York Times newspaper. So I've actually been reading your work for a long time, and so I I come to this interview as somebody who's read your work for probably the last six or seven years, I'd say. I have memories of uh, of a previous apartment when my wife and I were first married, laying on the couch, uh, I think it was around Christmas time, reading an essay in the Times that you wrote about... um, God in the midst of suffering, where is God in the midst of suffering? Right, right. It's a good memory. And so unlike, you know, some other folks, uh, some significant percentage of folks who I kind of do, I get intrigued by and invite on the show and then do a lot of research kind of um, all in one blast. I have this longstanding context for having read your work uh, over these last five to seven years. You've you've undertaken, you've been on what to me seems like a, a almost a kind of... Uh, a project, maybe it's better described as a, a journey, maybe a difficult journey in some ways, but although we could not have known what was going to come and never can know uh, in terms of how you know the outcomes of elections or different political movements will sway things, starting around, I would say, in, in 2015 and then up to the present, you've really, as part of this body of work, um, and in many ways it's, it's largely been, in my understanding, for those two publications, you've written many, many, many pieces that all circle around the general topics of um, what the, the Trump and or MAGA, Make America Great Again movement within the context of the Republican Party would mean for the country and also for specifically the uh, sort of heart and soul of the, the contemporary American evangelical church. Right. And that's obviously kind of unfolded again over time as as events have overtaken us and, and, and things have transpired, and you, and you continue writing those. I was reading some of your more recent pieces just from the last month or two as I got ready for this uh, conversation. So, I mean, probably to start with, does, does it feel fair uh, to, to describe that as, as kind of a cohesive 
body of work or or almost a, a project. To me, it's it's something again that's kind of unfolded over time, and so it's not it's not a project in the sense that you set out to to do something and now have kind of stuck with it for years. Um, it's been more necessarily some some um, something that you've responded to, but there's also been a, a real consistency to it. Yeah, it's 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 a good question. It's great to uh, be on, Ben. Thanks for for having me on. Um, I think that that's 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 a reasonable way to understand it. I think it probably is a project, and in some respects, um, you know, as a as a writer on contemporary events, um, you uh, always need to some extent let uh, events and circumstances guide what what you what you write. And uh, my hope, uh, that wasn't necessarily an expectation, but my hope, like like a lot of people, was once Donald Trump uh, left the presidency, that I might be focusing in on uh, on other topics. But he did leave the presidency. But um, the the pathologies that that uh, he unleashed, or at least that he uh, accelerated the spread of, um, have have gotten worse, not 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 better. And I guess I do feel um, something uh, of uh, of a calling, of a, of a need to speak to this moment um, as it relates to um, our, our our country, conservatism, the Republican Party, and the Christian faith. I'm a person um, of the Christian faith. That's pretty central to to who I am, and. So I, I think this is both an extremely important moment in the life of the country, um, and it also touches on issues that I have some strong feelings with and history with uh, the Republican Party, um, of course, uh, because I've served in three previous Republican administrations, the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations, and the George W. Bush uh, White House, where I was a, a senior advisor. Uh, and then I've been a person of the Christian faith really since end of high school and, and into college. That's when, when, when my faith really began to develop. Um, and I've been part of the evangelical movement for many um, years. Uh, still attend a evangelical church, a PCA church here in McLean, Virginia. Um, so seeing the damage and the destruction that I think is happening both to the Republican Party and from my perspective, more importantly, the Christian faith, uh, it's it's painful, but I also think it's important to to, uh, to speak out. In those pieces that you've that you've written over these last five to seven years, that have kind of returned to and and trafficked in and similar or revisited similar themes, do you feel like you can identify sort of a, a main? Um, thing that you're trying to do as a writer. I was thinking about it and and it feels like there's maybe as an op-ed writer specifically there's two or three kinds of things or essays maybe more broadly that that someone can do. There can be an attempt to to you know overtly convince or persuade the reader of something to make a point. Then there can be this idea of of just bearing witness to something that is happening. You know, this this is my human take and I'm going to I'm going to use my my gift and vocation as a writer to bear witness to something that I see that's happening, um, and then then there's maybe even following on from that this third idea of of trying to get to the bottom of something to sort of work something out through the process of writing and 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 you know for your own self if for no one else do do any or or more than one of those resonate as something that you feel like you're consciously trying to do when you sit down to write these pieces. Yeah, that's very insightful. Um, actually, I, I I think probably I I do each of those things <clears throat> depending on 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 the moment, uh, subject I'm writing on, and what my own mood is and my own disposition is at at any given moment in in uh, <clears throat> in time. I think part of it for me as a writer is I try to <clears throat> give voice to what's on my heart and my mind, uh, and find the best way that I can. Uh, to assemble the words in the best way that I can to express express what's what's happening and <clears throat> excuse me in any given column um, it might be a feeling of lament it might be a feeling of concern it might be a feeling of outrage uh, it might be a feeling of loss uh, it may 
be a feeling of uncertainty and confusion that one is trying to trying to sort sort through. Um, certainly during during the tr Trump years, uh, and I've written on things other than 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 Trump uh, during those years, um, and 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 I've written columns, several columns, a lot of columns, mostly in the New York Times, but also in the Atlantic. Just sheer reflections on the Christian. Yeah. Um, and other things too. I've written on sports and so forth, but when, but I've written predominantly on 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 the politics and faith. I, I would say those two, and, and often the intersection of them. Um, and I think w part of what I'm trying to do um, is, as you said, bear 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 witness. Um, I suppose to the truth as I see it, and it's important for me as a person of the Christian faith who feels like. Uh, Jesus is being distorted um, by a lot of people who claim to be his followers. And he's being distorted through a cultural prism, a sociological prism, uh, a partisan political prism. I think I feel a longing in my heart to try and present Jesus as I understand him. And I think that there's a deformation of Jesus that's going on. So from time to time in my columns, I try and uh, I would say reclaim Jesus as best I understand. I'm 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 flawed and 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 my uh, angle of vision is distorted like, like like everyone else's. But I'm trying to be faithful to what I understand Jesus to be, and I really do believe that um, that deformation, um, <clears throat> warping of of who he is 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 a problem. Other times I do write to try and persuade, um, uh, and I. I tend to write, I suppose, a little bit as a lawyer. I try to establish my fact, a make, make sure my facts are accurate, and <clears throat> put links in a logical chain so readers can understand why I'm arguing what I'm arguing. Um, so if they disagree with me, they can also identify in specific ways where the points of of departure are. I suppose in some respects. Uh, as a writer, you you also write to encourage the people that you think might need encouragement, and even to give voice to people who share your views but don't have a way of expressing them. And that's often, I'd say, as a writer, uh, it's it's a moving thing when you hear from people. This is particularly true of my of my columns on faith, where they reach out to you and they say, "Thanks for giving expression. Thanks for giving voice to something that I felt." I've heard from a lot of people who said I felt like I was going insane or that I was all alone or that nobody else saw the same things that I believe I'm seeing. And so when you can do that uh, as a writer, you know, that's a source of satisfaction. To give a little context, again, I, I've been reading your work across this really uh, fertile, turbulent time in American political history and also in the history of the, at least the recent history of the contemporary church. As somebody who grew up as the son of an evangelical pastor, 80s and 90s um, evangelical church, two, two different churches my dad was a pastor at. And so I was really steeped, to some extent, in that culture. Um, I've since retained my faith and, and also simultaneously personally moved away from that evangelical moniker. Um, and it feels to me like, um, having read pretty broadly and just being really invested in this conversation about what is going on in the church, um, that there's just a huge generational component. Lots of the conversations, understandably, that I have are with, or with my own friends or peers. Um, you know, one example would be, a, I think I actually maybe mentioned to you previously when we were corresponding about maybe doing this, that um, I went to Biola University and so I've had conversations with other uh, friends who, you know, lifelong friends I made there about kind of where we're at and where their parents are at and just how this has all played out. And I, I mentioned that to some extent with the mind to just asking about, um, even as you yourself mentioned, having heard from folks back over the transom, as they say, folks responding to your work, uh, sending you back notes, et cetera. Do you feel that you're, well, I guess just anecdotally, do, do you tend to, to sense to the extent that you get a sense from those notes uh, or people are overtly identifying themselves that there's kind of a generational breakdown in terms of, of who tends to respond to your work? Do you hear more from baby boomers or folks of your own 
uh, generation? Is it is it more young folks who kind of feel energized by your your stuff? Who do you hear from? Yeah, it's a good question. First, thanks for your um, <clears throat> a little bit on your biography. That's yeah, really interesting to me, and it helps me understand you and, and some of the factors and forces that that uh, that shaped you and what you describe. <clears throat> I've heard from. <clears throat> uh, from what you describe, uh, from what I've heard from from a lot of people, is is a similar story that, that people who haven't lost their faith, but they've moved away from the, the evangelical um, title, the evangelical subculture, uh, and uh, certainly um, you know grateful for the for, for for the first, and I understand and I understand the second. I think I've I've been going through something of a similar process too. In terms of who who I hear from, you know. Both actually, um, I, I I hear from younger people um, because I, I do think that the younger generation of Christians uh, are largely horrified from from what I think is this kind of moral freak show that's that's unfolding. And I had a lunch with a, a person who was instrumental in my own uh, evolution of faith, a, a pastor in uh, Washington State. His name is Carl Coppock. Carl was actually uh, youth pastor at Westside Church in Richland, Washington, where I grew up. And he uh, was the um, organized the first Bible study I was a part of. Really, even before I was a Christian, I would say, I was exploring it. And, and our first Bible study was was Romans. I'm not, I'm not sure I'd recommend to other people to to uh, dive into Romans if, if you don't really have much background or history with Christianity. But in this case, I had a very wise uh, guide in, in Carl, and, um, and it seems to have worked out reasonably well. But when I saw Carl um, a couple of years ago uh, for, for breakfast, when I was visiting the West Coast, he said, uh, this is a generational catastrophe. And I've heard that from a lot of different people. I can sense it from my own communications with uh, younger Christians. I've heard it from people who teach younger Christians and uh, seminaries and, and Christian um, colleges and universities. So definitely something is going on there. And, and I hear that. But I also hear from a lot of people of of my generation too, um, and uh, you know people who have committed their life not just to following Jesus, but to broadly speaking the evangelical cause. And there, it's quite painful and often poignant. I mean, I've I've had conversations with pastors whose eyes have welled up with tears when they describe what's what's happening because they really have, in good faith, given so much of their life. To this, and they believe it's 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 the, the central truth of, of human existence and human reality, and the central figure in human history. Uh, and so, to see this distortion take place um, is quite emotional to them. And so, um, I hear from 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 those folks, and and they're basically saying, um, you just need to keep writing or speaking out. Um, because there are a lot of us that are out here, uh, more than maybe people understand. And I, I, I would say it's also in what they feel is important and what I feel is important is, I think if you're a person who's, who's not of the Christian faith, and you just observe this from a distance as it was unfolding, there's a phenomenon that's happening, which is very prominent and outspoken people of the Christian faith are embracing Trump, Trumpism, MAGA world ideology. And they're basically fusing the Christian faith with that ideology, Christian nationalism, so forth. A lot of people who uh, don't share that view, indeed, who, who, who object to it, who are concerned by it, don't speak out. And they don't speak out for understandable reasons. I mean, a lot of pastors seminary presidents and so forth, they didn't get into the ministry because they wanted to get involved in politics. They've always rightly kept a distance between between faith and politics. They don't view themselves as culture warriors. They got into the ministry because they want to preach the gospel and to touch people's souls and help them through the journey of life, through grief, through sorrow, through joys, through celebrations. So they've been silent largely. And so if... <clears throat> If you're not a part of that world, you don't know those pastors, you don't see what's going on in churches, and you are at a distance, you would say, well, a lot of these people are speaking out all the time in prominent places, 
saying that Christianity, evangelical Christianity, is represented by MAGA world, the Republican Party, and you don't have many counter voices or counter narratives. And some people say, well, these people are claiming it. There aren't many people who are speaking out against it. So I guess this is what American evangelicalism stands for. So I think people like myself, Michael Gerson, David French, a few others who are not ministers, but who are people of faith, probably consciously or unconsciously speak out because we feel like there are so few voices within institutional Christianity who are saying, uh-uh, no way, this doesn't speak for. For us, there's a different view, a higher view, a more holy view that you can, um, that that uh, is is central to Christianity. I find myself wanting to pull back a little bit, and this is this is just a sort of a, a perennial area of interest for me when it comes to writers, especially I think in some cases writers uh, of nonfiction or certainly who are writing for for uh, you know in in some part of the contemporary news media landscape, but essentially this this idea of like the the personal cost and or emotional experience of doing the work and just ask you a little bit about that i, I think the thing one of the first things when i was creating the the document um that i that i tend to to sort of have up and, and use to guide me is my notes when i go through a conversation which obviously kind of ends up going where it'll go but one of the first things i as i remember it that i jotted down was a was some version of the phrase so pete you know how's it going at this point like how you how you feeling after six or seven years um of what, again, just as somebody who's read your work, has felt like kind of a, kind of a just rolling, you know, catastrophic avalanche of of, of bad news. Hey, we we really shouldn't elect Donald Trump. That's going to be really bad. Okay, uh, we elected him. Wow, it's, it's really not going well. <laughs> this is not this is not good. Uh, okay, he's left, and wow, we're continuing to allow, you know, there's a lot of fealty still and a lot of darkness. Do you, do you just feel demoralized at this point? Do you, do you feel somehow a second wind and energized to carry on? Just like, where are you at right now? Yeah, it's a, um, it's a really interesting question. And uh, thanks, thanks for asking it. I'd say a couple of things in, in, in response to it. I don't, I don't feel uh, demoralized um, by it. Um, I think it's probably largely temperamental uh, and dispositional. Um, so I, um, I think I, I probably don't tend that way uh, toward 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 things. I, uh, here's how I, I guess I would describe it. One is I actually I think I probably consider it a, a privilege and an honor to have the capacity to write and speak out in uh, influential forums at a key moment um, in the life of our nation and in a key moment. Um, for, for 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 American Christianity, um, so I've I've got a chance. <clears throat> excuse me, I've got a chance to to make my case and to to speak the truth as I see it, um, and to do it on important matters. Um, we're not <clears throat> talking about the whether the top tax rate should be forty one percent or thirty seven percent. We're talking about issues fundamental to democracy and even more fundamental than that. Which is about truth and reality, um, and whether this country can can hold 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 together. So there's a I'm I'm aware of the of of the fact that this is a key moment, significant moment, and and I'm able to speak to it, and I, and I don't take that lightly at all. I, I do consider that a privilege. Second thing I I would say is I probably bracket politics more in my life and my consciousness. Maybe most people would imagine. It's not like I th I think and eat and breathe politics, uh, and it's not like when I get away from writing, you know, I just watch cable news all night and get riled up and wake up in the morning and 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 read, you know, go on Twitter and get all 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 riled up. I mean, I I follow what's going on. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter. Um, but often Twitter brings kind of joy and, and, and some fun too, you know, when it's, when it's nature, when it's, when it's animals, when it's, uh, you know, and things that are happening in, 
in, in nature and, and, and in uh, astronomy and space and so forth. Um, but also my life is just, I think, probably more uh, multi-layered maybe than, than most people think. Um, and, uh, and so I just kind of go about my life. I don't think politics is the most important thing in my life. And on a daily basis, it's not the most important thing in most, most people's uh, lives. So I, I think that's, that's a second, second thing. The third thing is um, I just have an approach to this, and maybe this is a slight rationalization, <clears throat> given that the causes that I care about are, uh, are not doing terribly well these days. Um, but we're called as individuals to be faithful, um, not necessarily successful. Now, all of us would rather be both. Um, and um, that's what you strive for. But you can't make the success of your endeavor the criterion by which you you judge your your uh, your efforts. And there's certainly been noble efforts, not that mine compared to, to these, but there have been noble efforts throughout history of people who have simply spoken out trying to give truth to a moment. And in the time in which they spoke, their cause didn't necessarily carry the day, or maybe their cause carried the day later. Um, and, uh, but, but whether that's true or not, there are too many vicissitudes in life. And John Adams said, life is a theater of vicissitudes. And there are too many things that I can't control and you can't control that will determine whether certain things are, are successful or not. Certainly in the, in the realm of, of politics and faith, that's way beyond my capacity to, to, uh, alter the course of events way, way above my pay grade. Um, all I can really do is to try and be faithful to what I believe is true and right and honorable, um, true to what is most consistent with the things that I care about, um, true to the things that I think reflect integrity. Um, and when you do that, uh, then then I think you can sort of hold more loosely to, to what unfolds. Um, and... I think beyond that, you know, life is a long game. History is a longer game. And um, there are different inflection points in history, good and bad. And often they happen in in a relative blink of an eye. And you don't really know when they're going to happen. Um, but what you try and do, I would say, in the realm of public life and public service, theology, theologians and so forth, is is you speak as best you can, you hope that it makes a difference. And sometimes what you say in the moment can meet, and then you can begin to nudge the moment a bit, shape the moment a little bit. Um, and sometimes that's what you have to do, just like in your own individual life. Sometimes there are seasons of sorrow, seasons of hardship, seasons of grief, and you just sort of go through a day at a time, a step at a time, and you hope things begin to... Um, you know, to turn around and, um, and they may, or they may not, but, uh, but all you can be is, is faithful within those certain moments in, and in whatever circumstances you, you find yourself. Well said. Uh, so, okay. It sounds like you've had a little bit more success than I have in kind of, uh, bracketing or inoculating yourself against the, the acid bath of the news media environment, the radioactivity, um, that's been more challenging for me, but it, it's actually kind of also a good segue into what feels like an even more kind of fraught liability for someone who's specifically <clears throat> straddling this world of, of being a, a writer who is, you know, in a professional context writing. And let's, let's talk specifically, because I think it's most illustrative about actual human beings, political figures or leaders with whom they strongly disagree, and who is at the same time a Christian and wants to take that seriously. It, it feels really sticky and thorny to me to even kind of think about how you would navigate the question of, uh, let's you know maybe use a, a really recent example of Herschel Walker, Senate candidate who you, from reading your recent piece on him, don't have a lot of respect for. You're, it's pretty. It's an unvarnished piece. You don't think he's a good candidate. Don't think he's a great guy. 
what what does it mean to you know speak the truth unabashedly to bear witness to the truth particularly in regards to you know speaking truth to power while also not descending into hatred or contempt or kind of personal scorn for another human being created in God's image. That just seems so challenging for me. How do you think about that? That is such a great question. And I think about it all the time. Um, and my guess is I haven't gotten the balance uh, right. Uh, so, so, or sometimes I'm, I'm sure the balance is, um, or I'm sure that, that I've been out of balance at, at, uh, at times. Um, and it's it's a tough thing to um, it's a tough thing to 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 hold together because sometimes they can they can be they can be in in uh, in tension. So how how do I work through that? How do I work through that tension? Um, I think it's actually the way you 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 stated it, um, and 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 then it's a question of how you in practical and concrete ways express um the the things that you mentioned the, the first is um how do you speak the truth in an unvarnished way um or at least how i see the truth in an unvarnished way i'm a pretty direct person i'm a pretty direct writer i try not to be elliptical in 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 my writing if i have strong opinions i try and state them if i have uh strong affirmations over things i try and express those and if i have strong disagreements i try and do that i don't really want to pull any punches and i want my writing to reflect as much that is authentically how, how i'm seeing things now i'm feeling things as as i can and if you believe as i believe that this is a perilous moment and there are people there's a spectrum of people who are doing real damage to the country and i think some of those people are um misled and the product of misinformation and disinformation um and that's one category of 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 people and it's complicated which is um it can create some measure of 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 understanding maybe empathy and and a, a, a disposition toward toward grace toward people which we should have you know toward toward most people saying that individuals are caught up in a web of misinformation disinformation they're not actively trying to hurt the country they're not actively trying to subord, uh, subvert truth but that's the effect of what they're doing you know and then the question is well at what point are you part of a malicious enterprise is doing so much harm that even if you're not aware of the harm that you're doing you're morally complicit in that uh malicious enterprise that itself is a really complicated question then you go into the category of people that you believe know better um that are that are uh speaking uh falsehoods that they know are falsehoods whether in some cases to advance their political ambitions in some cases to get radio listeners in some cases to get television viewers in some cases to get readers to their to their websites or their articles that's in a different category i think they're a more morally uh uh compromised position which is that they know they're doing harm but they're putting their own ambitions ahead of the moral good the good of the country the good of you know the good of the faith so you have to kind of sort through that, that question. And I think the way one approaches those people is somewhat, somewhat different. Then, as you said, there's this idea of, you know, Christian teleology, the belief that all people are created in the image of God, the understanding that we've all fallen short of God, that we have our, our own failures uh, and that we have our own blind spots. Um, and we can see the blind spots of other people a lot, lot faster and a lot, lot clearer than we see our own. And, um, and you know, uh, we think that others are failing, but uh, but maybe we're failing in some significant ways too. And then there's just the basic uh, etiquette of democracy, which is civility and respect. You know, in 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 cases where it's warranted. I mean, the the tropism should be toward that, toward treating people with 
with uh, with respect. But there are people uh, that you, that you come across in which they've, in a sense, I think, forfeited the benefit of the doubt. And sometimes you just have to speak, I think, very directly um, in a way that names what they're doing and the harm they're doing. And if you have evidence what the motives are that that may well be well be driving them. And you're not doing a service to truth or even a service to faith, you know, to pull your 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 punches there. Uh, last thing I'll say on this is, again, I'm sure that I haven't gotten gotten this balance right. I do know this, that if I were not a person of the Christian faith, uh, you would see in my writing the hammer come down a lot harder than it does even even now. And there are often in my pieces, when I think a lot of writers might bring that hammer down, I try and uh, hit a different note, um, either a note of outreach, maybe a note of understanding, maybe it's just a note of sorrow of what's of what's uh, of what's happening. But it really is uh, it really is tricky because it's very easy when you th think that the side that you're opposing is doing real harm that you get pulled into the very same pit that they're in and that you use the means that they do and you begin to rationalize it and say you know there's so much at stake these people should know better it infuriates me that they're that they're embracing lies that surely they must know are lies and that they're doing not marginal harm but fundamental harm to causes that i care about you know, when 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 that's your mindset, uh, it can really very easily pull you into dark places, and you can create rationalizations, um, and then there are just sort of raw, base human emotions like anger, vengeance, things like that um, that we feel, and we have to keep in check, and <clears throat> then we try and and uh, rationalize what uh, what. Uh, what we do, uh, and and basically you say, look, I'm speaking truth to power. Therefore, I can say anything and do anything, and that's 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 a that's a really um, perilous place to be. What you are, you're the the person who provides the rare opportunity to actually talk to somebody, kind of at this nexus of evangelical faith or just Christian faith, sincere Christian faith, and actual governmental experience. Which is kind of a, I think a, a fascinating um, opportunity that I can't pass up. So I'd like to actually actually just ask you a little bit more explicitly, um, if briefly, about your time working in government. And it's it's with a mind to just kind of understanding, um, maybe anecdotally or just in your own personal experience and relationships, how, uh, to the extent that that you that you saw this actually being the case. Um, how did how did Christian belief manifest itself in the lives of people in power or in government with whom you worked? What did that look like in, in terms of actual decision making, and did it you know ultimately leave you hopeful or cynical? It didn't leave me cynical. Um, I've 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 not been cynical about politics. I mean, I've been discouraged about it. Never more discouraged than this. Than this moment, but in my own experiences with people, I'm, I'm not cynical. And I'm not cynical about the political enterprise. I think it's important to say because I, I think politics is important, um, in part because politics is about justice. It's not all it's about, but at its core, it's about uh, justice, and and it's a means to advance justice. Certainly not the only means in life to do that. And politics gets it wrong all the time, but sometimes it gets it right, and it and it matters. And if you give up on politics. You're basically giving up on human beings because when you get your politics wrong, there can be profound human consequences to it. And it's one of one of my worries about this this moment is that people do become cynical and figure, look, I'm just going to check out of this thing. This, this is just not worth worth it. Uh, in my own experience, the manifestations of uh, of faith uh, with those in power has largely been good. Um, I, I can give you some, some practical, uh, examples, which was my time with, uh, you know, President Bush and the Bush administration. Um, uh, and, you know, 
it was controversial presidency because uh, of what happened in the aftermath of 9-11 and the wars. And certainly people will object to, to policy decisions that the president made, that we made in the administration. So I get all of that. But to take one very practical, concrete policy, it was the Global AIDS Initiative, PEPFAR. And there were several people who were uh, driving that effort, uh, President Bush, most of all. And I'm certain that his faith helped inform his views on, on that. You know, the context was that nobody was paying attention to this I issue. Millions of people were dying in the African continent because of, of AIDS. There was no real political value in pushing this. And, but he and a group of advisors, including Michael Gerson, who is uh, one of my closest friends, and he was a chief speechwriter for President Bush when I was deputy director of speechwriting for a couple of years, and I went on to become director of something called the Office of Strategic Initiatives. It's kind of in-house White House think tank. Um, but Mike and 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 President Bush, um, and there are people like Josh Bolton, who, who's a person of, of, of Jewish faith, pushed really, really hard for PEPFAR, a huge increase in the spending. They worked with Tony Fauci uh, and um, and Mark Dibel and others to do this. Um, and, you know, there are probably 15 million people who are alive today because of that effort, the, 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 the various manifestations of what the Global AIDS Initiative led to. Um, and that was something that was a product of faith. Now, it wasn't only a product of faith, and people who didn't have faith weighed in on this too and could easily have weighed in. I'm simply saying that in my experience, I know that the 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 Christian worldview, if I can use that term, shaped both George W. Bush and Mike Gerson and others, was really at the center of doing doing what uh, what they what they did. And I also know from examples from behind the scenes of of how President Bush conducted himself personally with people, of how his faith um, influenced that and and made him. A better person than he would have been without it. You know, I have a view of faith and 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 people in life, and I think sometimes people, when they become believers, um, it can actually make them harder people, harder edge people, more judgmental, le less forgiving, more self righteous. Um, but for others, it softens the edges. It makes them more tender. It it shapes our sensibilities. Uh, in, in a way that, that makes them more empathetic, compassion, and kind. And I think that's the case with, with President Bush, again, whether you agree or disagree with his policies, just seeing how he treated people, especially people who he had power over. And of course, if you're president, you, you have power over an awful lot, of, lot of, uh, of people. There were others in the administration, people like Will Inboden and Peter Fever, who were people of the Christian faith. Peter and Will were in the national security council and we had conversations explicit conversations about policy and the intersection of faith and tried to work through some really hard complicated issues and just ask what would be as best we can tell the right approach as as as, as followers of jesus in this particular situation again i'm sure we got things wrong but i know that there was a good faith effort to try and 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 do that um and then there's there's just and this is true of people in in government and powerful positions, but non-government too. It's just how does faith shape the way that you deal with people, especially people over whom you have authority and power? Um, do you lord it over them? Uh, are you rude or are you sh short? Do you take advantage of them or, uh, or not? Or do you do the opposite? Um, and that's just a really basic baseline test about how much faith shapes you know shapes an individual's individual's life i th i think in my experience most of the people who got involved in in politics liberal and conservative have gotten involved for the right reasons i think most people of the christian faith who've gotten involved in politics get involved for the right reason i do think that once you're there in power there are a lot of temptations a lot of traps 
And you have to be careful. You have to be wary. You have to surround yourself with people whom you trust, who have standing in your life, who can tell you if you're going off the track. Um, one of the reasons that this current era is 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 a painful one to me, and this and a somewhat dispiriting time for me, is that an awful lot of people in the Republican Party who know better in this Trumpian moment um, have gone silent or 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 have become complicit in that movement, and they really do know better, but they're afraid. Basically, it's a failure of courage, uh, and it's what's what's triumphing here is is ambition. It's the knowledge that if you take a stand for truth and speak truth to power and speak in clear terms of what Donald Trump is and has been, what he and his movement are doing to the country, to truth, to reality, even to the Christian faith, that you may well lose power. And we've seen a test case of this in, in Liz Cheney. I mean, Liz Cheney was the third ranking Republican uh, in, in the House. She was on a spat path to to potentially becoming speaker. And uh, she's now basically become persona non grata in the Republican Party. Why is that? Is it because of her policies? No, she was a rock-ribbed conservative, much more conservative for much longer than uh, than Donald Trump. Is it even because she didn't vote for Trump's agenda when she was in Congress? No, I think she voted 95% of the time for him. Is it because she didn't have standing in the Republican Party? No, she's part of one of the most important um, Republican families in modern Republican history, the Cheney family, uh, both father and mother. Um, and so what was it exactly that led to her uh, being attacked and and targeted um, and and hated by the Republican Party? One thing, she stood up and spoke clearly and candidly the truth about Donald Trump, of who he was, of what he did leading up to during and after the election, about the lies that he's 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 been peddling. And she's almost alone in the Republican Party to have done that. There's Adam Kinzinger, who has stood stood with her. Mitt Romney, I think, has 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 stood, held up well and and acted honorably as as well. But almost everybody else has folded. They've either gone silent or they uh, they have become cheerleaders for that agenda. And that's just a, a lesson of human nature. I don't think this is the kind of thing that's confined only to the Republican Party, though I think it's manifest most obviously and most dangerously in the Republican Party now. But it's really a sign of human nature and why what power can do to people and what ambition can do do to uh to people um so that's always been there in politics politics has had moments of grandeur and moments of great honor and as i said earlier moments where justice has been um has been advanced and it's had low moments and ugly moments and debased moments and right now uh in this country certainly with the republican party I would say, as someone who had been a lifelong Republican prior to the Trump years, that's where the Republican Party is. And it's a cautionary tale. I've gone through a process of, of disassociating from and, and, and not being registered with either political party. I was registered with the Democratic Party for a number of years. And at this point, I'm not registered with any party and, and have felt a real freedom uh, in that, uh, both as a voter, as I consider candidates on the merits and it's just it felt like something that it, it was necessary for me to do uh, in terms of my personal integrity. I'm quite jaded in many ways about uh, certainly national level, even to some extent state level politics. One of the biggest balms, um, sort of ameliorating realities uh, that's that's been encouraging to me is anytime I can just really hear, a, even if it's a brief kind of um, you know instance of, of compromise or really admiration, um, endorsement um, from someone regarding someone who they respect but but disagree with strongly. So this is putting it on the spot, but do you, is there anybody who kind of comes to mind either from, from your years working in those White House administrations or, you know, maybe another, another columnist, anybody in your, in your professional life um, 
who you could say that about? Essentially, like this is someone who I have pretty strong disagreements uh, with, but also uh, consider to be a principled person who I respect. Yeah, no, it's 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 a really good good question. You know, in in, in the world of uh, commentary, um, it um, somebody like E.J. Dion, uh, who's a liberal columnist from the Washington Post. Um, and EJ and I have disagreed on a lot of issues, you know, over uh, over the over the years, and even debated some of those those issues. Um, but he's a person of uh, strong uh, Catholic faith. He's a person that um, I, I think I have a pretty good sense of what motivates EJ, what 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 the desires of his heart are, which is which is to to uh, to help people. He's a smart guy, um, and um, and written important books uh, over the years uh, including a book in the 90s i think why americans hate hate uh, hate politics um so you know he would he would be one example of 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 others that uh that i could uh, that i could could name um and in terms of political figures um you know it would de- it would depend in a certain way on What's the what is it about those individuals whom whom I uh, whom I respect? I mean, there's somebody like Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a Democrat when I was a committed Republican, and I always respected Moynihan for the quality of his mind, the quality of his scholarship, the quality of his um, of his writing, um, and you know he didn't vote the way that I I would have uh, voted on 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 some issues. But um, he was just brilliant, one of the most brilliant people ever to occupy the the uh, the Senate. And uh, uh, and and uh, uh, and it, it really, I think, enlightened public discourse and public debate in 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 a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, even in a, in a certain way, in a, and I would say here in a narrow way, but but Ted Kennedy was actually a masterful senator who was able to make compromises. I mean, he was he was a kind of liberal lion. And, and I certainly think there's a lot in his life that I would take exception with both his personal life and also his political life. I, I thought he did a real hit job on on Robert Bork back in the in the 1980s. On the other hand, he was precisely because he 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 was lionized by the liberals that he was able to make a lot of deals on a lot of issues over the years, even with us in the Bush administration on No Child Left Behind. Um, and so he actually had a had a history of, as, as a compromiser um, that uh, that was uh, that was impressive and I think probably would have surprised surprised people. You know Barack Obama, um, who's who was more certainly more liberal than, than I was and I was critical of Obama during during his his presidency, but um, you know his capacity uh, to uh, to inspire people through through language. I I actually really enjoy enjoyed and and going back. I mean to this day, listening to him, I always appreciated the quality of his mind. I thought he was. I could always follow his reasoning, um, and I think Obama at his best almost wore, wore a hat as a political commentator. He would, he, he, unusual for a politician, I think he was able often, not always, but often to give voice or to articulate the side that he disagreed with before he showed why he, why he disagreed uh, with it. So I, I admired, you know, the quality of, uh, uh, of, uh, of his mind. There, there are other people, again, I, you know, neither party has by any means According to the market on personal virtue, plenty of Democrats and liberals who are admirable people, and plenty of Republicans who aren't, and vice, you know, vice versa. And when you get into the realm of political virtues, it depends on what you're talking about. Courage can be a political virtue, uh, for sure. Um, but as as we were talking about, compromise can be a political virtue too, and sometimes. To compromise requires, you know, requires courage. There can be intellectual virtues. Uh, there can be the the virtue of discernment and wisdom. Um, so, you know, no, 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 no party, no ideology has a corner on any of that. I appreciate your willingness to share some of that. 
Um, you know, as we as we move maybe towards a conclusion, I actually would like to to kind of pivot to a final. It's more of just a a, a story or a just sharing something with you. I don't even know if you'll remember this. You give a lot of interviews. You were on a podcast three years ago uh, with a dear friend of mine, a good buddy of mine named Dan Koch. And he interviewed you. That He's onto a new podcast now, but his at the time it was for uh, his, his then current podcast, which was called Depolarize. And you said something in this interview. I'll remind you of what it was, a very brief quote. But for whatever reason, I think of it at least once a month. I have at least once a month for the last three years. It was a point in the interview where you were essentially talking with Dan, as I remember it, a, a little bit about your own just personal spiritual history and your your conversion story, which you alluded to earlier. And I'm glad I remembered this right. That was around maybe late high school, college is when you were first becoming, in, in your own telling of it, a, a serious Christian or converting. And the thing that you said in this interview that stuck with me was, you know, as, as you sort of look back across the decades at both the American church and I understood you to mean, you know, both also in your personal relationships, the, the quote you said that's kind of haunted me, honestly, was, I thought I would have seen more changed lives. Uh, I don't know if that, if, if that still resonates today, um, but for me, I think part of why it's been something that's really stuck with me is that it's, it's felt really true. <laughs> it's felt, it's felt like as I've reflected on that and, and been honest with myself about, you know, my relation, the, basically the, the way in which of all the friends, family, acquaintances of various kinds, uh, in my life who I've had people I've had personal relationships with who, who identify overtly as being quote Christians. And I take stock of how they actually live their lives, sort of a, and then, a, you know, in light of a general understanding of the really vexing, at times almost impossibly difficult, weird teachings of this itinerant Palestinian rabbi from 2000 years ago. And more poignantly, you know, putting myself at the front of the line, as I look at my own values as a young parent, as a homeowner, constantly worried about money, constantly thinking about how am I going to afford to retire? What's my next job going to be? You know, I'm, I'm watching Netflix. I'm just, there's, I'm so American in my values in a, in kind of the worst sense at times. Um, and I guess I just, you know, uh, on one level wanted to share that with you and also kind of ask, I think as, as a way of, of inviting you to just sort of take stock three years older, three years further down the line, if that if that's something that still feels true for you or if you have um, people in your life, as I do, who sort of buck that and are, are a source of huge inspiration, people who do seem as though they've been touched by a God whose lives seem sort of inexplicably patient, loving, different. Yeah, thanks for, um, <clears throat> for bringing that up. I actually remember that, that conversation, that part of the, part of the conversation. Um, it's still very much on on my mind, uh, so much so that I'm actually the next uh, long essay that I'm going to do in the Atlantic is going to wrestle in part with that very question. Um, uh, so it's it's still very much there, and uh, I have a couple of reflections, several reflections um, on on it. Um, the first is to underscore the the point actually that you made. Which is that there are people in your life who who do even if imperfectly um, embody um, who Christ is to you and what you would have hoped you would find um, through the journey of faith um, throughout throughout your life, um, and I've had that too. Um, uh, there have been people who have been you know so crucial to me um through the journey including through um periods of um real uh, grief and sorrow um and and pain um and they've they've been there for me and today i think about uh, people like mark laberton um who's uh, the uh, retiring president of fuller seminary who has just a lovely pastor's heart i mean if i if i wanted to describe somebody that i thought had uh, a pastor's heart in, in the best way that I would think about it. You know, Mark would be really high on that list. Philip Yancey, the, the writer, is, who's, who's become a friend over the years. Um, Philip, uh, 
is 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 a person uh, who uh, embodies that to me. I've 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 learned from him, even in our correspondence, in his writings. Um, there's just a lot of wisdom and a lot of grace uh, that that's there. Steve Hayner is somebody I've talked about. It was a very influential person when I was young uh, at University of Washington and and helped shape my life and was a person of real integrity. And that integrity that I sensed in him um, allowed me to go to him and to share um, things um, in my own um, life that I was struggling with it at the uh, at the uh, the Tom Carl Coppock I had mentioned to you and others. So th that's the first thing I want to say, is, which is there are enough people who who do embody it even if it's rarer than i would have hoped and expected that that keeps me hopeful and they also give me examples of what's achievable and what uh you know as long as i can remember as a kid i've had heroes and role models and i've had them throughout my life and and i'm not a young kid anymore and i still have that it's, it's important for me both in the here and now and historically to have people that i can look look to so that's the first thing I would would say about it. But the second thing is I, I just have to be honest and 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 candid when I'm assessing it. And and what I said then is what I feel now, um, which is I think when I began that Christian journey, um, I would have thought that there would be more transformed lives. And I've seen, and part of this just to help set the context is, you know, when I was starting my Christian journey. Um, I was kind of intimidated by by Paul's writings. Um, I didn't focus necessarily on some of the, the 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 more difficult things that Paul wrote, you know, about women and so forth. Although those existed too, but I remember having these conversations with my sister, who was five years older than than me, and and uh, saying, you know, essentially Paul was describing a relationship with. God with Jesus that really reached the limit of language. And he was trying to bring us into that. And he he wrote about the new creation, present tense, not future tense. And this whole idea of how the fruit of the Spirit would live in those people who were Christians. And I think I went in sort of assuming, uh, maybe naively so, that people would be followers of Jesus, would declare themselves to be followers of Jesus, would really embody that, not perfectly by any means. Everybody's fallen, everybody struggles. Paul said he was the chief of sinners, so forth. But it felt like we were supposed to have many more things at our disposal to live lives of integrity, moral integrity, intellectual integrity, uh, and so forth, and than, than people who didn't believe. And uh, I haven't seen it, and I what as much as I would have hoped, and I and now I've also seen this is part of this Trumpian moment that we're talking about. Often people who proclaim, maybe loud, most loudly proclaim to be followers of Jesus, their lives um, are are antithetical to 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 uh, to him. Whether it's the, the public lives that they're associating with, or even the private lives, when we see these sort of catastrophes, moral catastrophes, like with Ravi Zacharias and you know and others. So where does that leave somebody like you and me as as we look at it? One is, it just may be that the Christian journey. Uh, and being a follower of Jesus was just a lot harder than I than I thought, um, and that we're much more the products of um, our culture, our surroundings, um, the, the country in which we live, the era in which we live, uh, and that you know human passions, including the baser human passions, just can be very you know very very powerful. Uh, and so, to be an authentic follower of Jesus just may be a lot harder and. And there are fewer uh, than than I would have expected, but maybe that's that's been the case throughout human history. I mean, the disciples, you know, they were hardly a perfect lot, and Peter betrayed Jesus, and so so, so did Judas, and so did so did uh, so did others. Um, but uh, you know, I I don't want to put a pretty ribbon on this. I don't really know. I'm I'm still struggling with it. That's part of the reason I want to write this essay. And I'm reaching out to people whom I respect of faith, and I'm trying to put this piece this um, together. You know, maybe Kierkegaard was 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 right um, in terms of how many authentic 
followers of Jesus there are. And maybe there's there's a lot that we think of as being Christian or as being a follower of Jesus, and it's really Christendom. You know, the 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 cultural corruption of um of uh, of the faith. So um uh, it's the lives that I've seen have have not there have not as many lives that I've seen that have been as transformed by faith as I would have thought or as I would have hoped. But there are enough lives that I've seen and enough lives who have in turn touched my life and the life of those whom I love to keep me hopeful and to feel like those people who best understand Jesus um, are different people and better people um, and more Christ-like people um, because of that, um, because of that, that, uh, that faith. Um, so, you know, I certainly haven't given up on, on it or given up on, on Christians, Christians themselves. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's an ongoing um, issue that I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with and trying to think through in a way that I, that I hope's, you know, honest. There's, there's a lovely uh, line in, in the prelude, which William Wordsworth wrote, which is uh, what, what we have loved others will love and we will teach them how. And um, I think if, if those of us who are, who are followers of Jesus love the right things um, and manifest that in, in our lives, um, then um, that is um, the, not only best for, for us and for the way that we live, but I think it's the most inviting thing to a watching world if, if, if they can see um, those lives that we're talking about that are transformed or communities that are, that are transformed. If the church becomes um, a safe harbor to people, a place of, of, of grace and of tenderness and of, uh, of care, um, you know, the world needs that. It's a broken world. It's always a broken world. Uh, sometimes it's more broken than, than others, but the human journey um, is, is, is a mixed one. I mean, there's a lot of pain and a lot of joy and a lot of in between, a lot of mundane life. But all of us need uh, community. All of us need people to to help us along the journey. Um, and if we, we as uh, as as people of the Christian faith, can be there, um, I think it's a huge opportunity. Um, and I think it's the best way uh, to. Uh, to reflect the character um, of Christ, which, after all, is what uh, what those of us who are followers of Jesus most uh, hope to do with our lives. A huge thanks to Pete Wainer for coming on the show. That is one of the more encouraging conversations that I've ever had on my pod. So I really would just encourage those of you who might have felt some affinity for his perspective to check out Pete's work at The Atlantic and The New York Times. Faith in Letters is a production of Facts Animus Studios. Our production assistant is Tess Seabright, fact-checking by Dean Gilbert, and special thanks to Lydia Bradley. We'll see you next week.